In the amazing movie The Whale, starring that guy from Encino Man, Darren Aronofsky recounts the story of a struggling overweight man. In the first part of this movie, he's in an apartment. In the second half of this movie, he's in an apartment. I felt saddest of all when I watched the boring scenes talking about religion, because I know the movie was just trying to save it from a sad story. This movie made me have afterthoughts, and it made me feel glad for John Garcia and Michael Dixon. Oh, hey, that's very sweet. Oh, nice. what's up, Ryan? We're uh, kicking off our second episode here talking about the whale. Are you saying you didn't enjoy the fact that the camera only once left his apartment to look back upon his apartment? <laughs> we saw a bus <laughs> at the beginning, I guess. Mm. Um, <laughs> yep. Yeah, so we're going to talk about the whale. Someone close to me passed away, and it had an effect on me. You're an amazing person, Ellie. I couldn't ask for a more incredible daughter. Are you actually trying to parent me right now? Why do you suddenly need to see her so bad? Why now? I need to know that she's going to have a decent life where she cares about people, and that she's going to be okay. I need to know that I have done one thing right with my life. Starring, and I want to call out here, it's Brendan Fraser. Fraser. Not yes. Fraser. Yeah, there's and no I'm sure I will still say it wrong. Yeah, but that's something that everybody says wrong. I've, I don't know how, because in the David Spade hit movie, Dickie Roberts, <laughs> David Spade <laughs> talks to Brendan Fraser and he goes out of the way to say Fraser. Oh my God, I love Brendan Fraser. Fraser. It is Fraser. It's Fraser. Why do people say I don't know how American audiences missed that movie. Has anyone other than you seen this movie, John? <laughs> it was in theaters for like half the time that like a Paul Blart would be. Is so this I one assumed... of those movies that was playing when you worked at that theater and, and you just watched it you a lot? No, one else yeah. did. no, I actually like it was like the first moment I felt optimism coming from an Adam Sandler SNL alum because it was all about child stars and how they don't know how to function in society. And like they fucked up by the system. Speaking of young actors who got fucked up by the system. <laughs> yes, good, yeah. good segue. Uh, this, this is uh, hailed as a return for Brendan Fraser, and I would say the highlight, but let's go around and give each of our opinions, and I'll kick it off to say I like Darren Aronofsky. We have talked about him previously to this. I love The Wrestler. This is a good-ish Aronofsky movie that it made me think afterwards, and I did kind of want to rewatch it, and I pulled a John and rewatched it the next day, a rarity for me. Oh, you watched it two days in a row? Yeah, to even watch something again, much less like two days in a row, just because I kind of like... It was immediately left after the movie being like, I don't know what I feel. Well, it was, <laughs> was free like, on the second watch because you can only buy it online right now. You can now, only buy so. it, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. That was the other reason. It definitely made me think, and I, I feel like Brendan Fraser's acting is awesome. And there were some really powerful, uncomfortable scenes, which Aronofsky does so well. And so for those pieces, it was an interesting watch. The rest of the choices Aronofsky made, like the ending and shot blocking, I thought were odd and kind of took away from it. And then overall, I'm not really sure what the hell the point of any of it was, which I still, after a second watching, don't get. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's like... Eh, so definitely interested in talking about it, I, but I don't know what I even feel about it. Dixon, what are your thoughts? Yeah, we should probably give a very brief plot synopsis right there is some plot in this. Like Brendan Fraser is playing a 600 pound man named Charlie, who is an online college professor who helps college kids write better essays. And he is living alone and has divorced his wife and has a daughter that he hasn't seen in 10 years. And his friend played by Hong Chow is a nurse who keeps checking in on him and make sure he's still alive. And he is just committed to not go to the doctor and wait out his days in his apartment. And the movie takes place over a week as he gets worse every day and, and goes to these different things and different people come and interact in his life. I had very mixed feelings about this movie. I've now seen it twice. And um, I, I think like kind of everything in this movie is either great or as absolute dog shit. And there is very little in between. I think Brendan Fraser is really good in it. I think Hong Chow is really good in it. And I think the best part of the movie is really their dynamic. I had a lot of problems with with the other characters, but them they felt really realistic. And I, I really bought their bond and understood that relationship pretty well. I thought the cinematography was actually really good. I think the choice to frame it in four by three with a 600 pound man in a small apartment was really interesting that, you know, gives you this claustrophobic feel. You kind of feel trapped in the apartment with him. And the camera is actually a lot more mobile than he is. And so, you know, the camera will be moving around while he's stuck on the couch and he's kind of turning his head around and trying to talk to somebody behind him. And you feel 
his, you know, kind of imprisonment in his own body and being unable to move around to the degree that he wants to. The script is bad. A lot of the dialogue just does not land. The whale metaphors are just so on the nose that I was just like, oh, really? This is what we're doing? His daughter, played by Sadie Sink, I, I think is just not a very well designed character she you know is just very flat she's just kind of a huge raging asshole and that's her thing and like i know she's a teenager and she's mad because her dad has not been a part of her life and she has plenty of reasons to be angry but like it seems like every point in the movie she is just trying to fuck with people and enact as much pain as possible at every turn to the point where it just kind of felt unrealistic to me and I, I think, you know, the first time I saw the movie, I was like, I don't know if I really buy this relationship and this dynamic. I think it's almost not the point. And, and once we get to the end of the movie, we can talk a little bit more about maybe what this movie is trying to say. But I, I think, yeah, there's some stuff in here that's really good and some stuff in here that's just like, eh. Uh, like the missionary character, I thought, served an interesting purpose to bring the role of religion in, into play and talk about how that actually can be really negative upon the community and upon people's lives. But that character didn't really make a lot of sense. It's like he's being really rebellious against his family and his religion because he wants to do a slightly different type of missionary work. I was just like, I don't really buy this. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot going on in this movie and everything, literally everything in it either works really well or really does not land for me at all. So I'm, I'm interested to break it down and kind of talk through those different pieces with you guys. John? So I enjoyed this movie. I had a good time, as depressing as it is. Uh, some of the stage play adaptations, I end up liking it because to an extent, a stage play knows that its characters are over the top or can be flat and are just pieces to move around a board to like get toward something more. That's what I was thinking when I watched the blocking in the business, which is the movie term of like when people get up where they are in frame and what they're doing exactly. All I could think about was it felt really forced. It felt like a stage play, like I was watching a community college production of something and Brendan Fraser was acting the fuck out of his role. It was great. Um, he was the, the main stay that like pulled me into it since he's the central figure. And for me, all of the other flaws, I was like, yeah, I didn't like, it didn't make a, a lot of sense for the missionary. Didn't make a lot of sense for his daughter to be as like weirdly aggressive and just horrible as she was being. Um, even in a, a sense of rebellion, I was like, this feels pushed so far. It was like maximalism of character arcs and archetypes. And then anytime Liz was in the frame and they were talking together, there was like a brother and sister kind of relationship. And that was like real human chemistry. But the rest of it around it was just a stage play. And then just trying to debate back and forth the whale itself and this essay just. Yeah, there was a lot like I was left thinking afterwards. I did not go back and watch it again. I did not have time to do that. I wanted to because I also was like, I feel like I missed some things maybe or maybe I didn't. Maybe it was just written that way. But I, I did enjoy it for what it was. And I found that it was interesting as a stage play adaptation because at times it almost breaches through into like being an actual film that doesn't feel like it's adapted from a stage play. And then other times it reminds me, oh, yeah, this is a single set. Like this is one, one place where you're, you're never going to think too far outside of the boundaries of where you are. It's the stage. I found a lot of the camera movement to be really compelling. And at the same time, the characters themselves pushed me away from it. So yeah, turn it, turn it back over to you, Ryan. Yeah, let's start at the top with the aspect of it being a film itself, like adapted from a play into a film. I agree the use of the ratio cramps it down, which is probably weird for a lot of people watching it on a TV. They probably don't really understand like why now I have so many black bars. The first time I saw this was at Austin Film Festival and it was it was like the it had premiered at a different festival, but it was opening the festival there and like Aronofsky and the screenwriter were there. So it was packed out and the only seat I could find was in the very front row. <laughs> like right right in front of this massive 600 pound man filling <laughs> filling a square. It's like, "Oh wow, this is uh, this is a lot." Yeah. Yep. And the, and the use of staying in the apartment and the kind of ease of like, uh, we understand the apartment and the size of it, this crampness from it, like that all I think is really interesting. Like that was an interesting choice and something that you can do as a film, though at the end of the day, I, in my mind, I'm like, well, on a stage, we would also have just the size of the stage, right? You could make that feel full and cramped, but I think it worked. The blocking and business, which, yeah, for, for those that don't know, blocking is kind of like where your characters are 
on the set, right? Like how you have them placed to each other and how they talk to each other, whatever. And business is like when they move around and do something within the shot. And I agree. The business in this, there was a point where it just took me out because I was like, it's just a play. Because if you watch a play every so often, a character just walks to the other side of the stage and then back to the other side of the stage. And then someone else gets up and walks to the side of the stage and then back. And it's just like, that's what you do in plays to kind of give you some action because you have no dynamic camera. Yeah, and like gives the something. people that sat over on the right some things to look at. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, as they like cut a rubber chicken up uh, that's been used several yeah, times right. over. <laughs> yeah, and and that a couple times there were some shots where I was like, okay, this isn't it. And I actually think like the probably the most powerful moment for Charlie and for us as an audience and. The actual dynamic camera is where Charlie turns around and says, like, I want to just do one good. I want to know I've done one good thing with my life. And it's in close on him. The the finger, we have this interesting, like, his finger is kind of to the camera and then back to his face, almost at an angle as well. So it's one of those, like, okay, now we're doing something we couldn't do in a play. And it pushes him up to us and emotion in his face. And I was like, that's really great. And it's like the only thing other than like a key on the floor that we zoom in on. Like there's really not anything else I thought that did anything with the camera that wasn't just like rotating around, you know, or people walking left and right around each other. Yeah. I, I will say also one thing that you get with a movie that you don't get with the stage play. I mean, you could get it with the stage play to a degree, but not nearly as intimate as a movie can get you is the sounds Charlie makes naturally as a human being, like the wheezing yeah. within his body, hearing these different parts of him, like ache and crack and move. And just like the actual heft and weight of this person is like accentuated so much with the, the film qualities that are added to it. So that's true. And he's kind of perpetually sweating and, you can keep that going in a movie or in a stage play. That would be tough, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're already sweating up there with all those lights. So it's just like, even yeah, that's more true. So. It's dangerous. <laughs> you have to get him out of there after a while. That, that kind of moves into one, another thing to talk about. I think I kind of get where I'm mixed on that. Like it worked in some places. It didn't uh, early buzz on this movie and looking at reviews, there's kind of this same mixed, you know, feeling about it. And it a lot talks about is this movie, fat shaming or like how is the use of the character being overweight fit within the play and is it that he is just presented as disgusting um and so i feel like we kind of have to talk a little bit about that and dress that because i'm also not sure how i feel about that either yeah yeah do you have opinions on this i am in i i would say having observed it i feel like it is not fat shaming i feel like obesity is used here as a means to suicide um, to really bring his end around. And it would be different if the play was like, he just is a regular guy who's really depressed and decides I'm going to take a bunch of pills at the end of this week. Then we're following a different context. And there, this is where like physically he's pushed to the brink. Like it's beyond taking pills and just passing out and dying that way. Like his body is shutting down actively. So there's like an actual clock. It's, Hitchcock's bomb essentially, uh, to an extent, like there's just a tension of what could happen and when, um, we don't even know if he would make it to the end of the week. Technically, like we're not guaranteed it, but that's my, opinion. yeah, I, I think the, they use, uh, you know, uh, obesity and overeating as a way to explore the ideas of addiction and self-destruction and, and suicide and, and things like that and depression that I think the movie does a good job of exploring. And I think, um, like the more I think back on the movie, I think the things work if you think about them from Fraser's character's perspective and what he, how he may be interpreting the situation that may not be what, how it should be interpreted or what is actually happening, what an objective person would think is going on. But he is just so um, just driven by addiction and the, the grief from losing his boyfriend that has driven him to this state where he doesn't care about anything anymore. And even there are other characters like um, Hong Chow, the, the nurse, she's like, you know, Charlie, what are you doing? You can't do this to yourself. You're killing yourself. And then she like goes outside and smokes a cigarette, you know, and yeah. she's a nurse. Yeah. And so I think there's an interesting idea in this movie about self-destruction where, you know, we kind of we all do things that we know are probably not the best things for us to varying degrees. But um, yeah, I, I think I, I like I understand where people are coming from on the fat shaming thing, but like. It's a, the movie is using that as a a vice to talk about these problems. And if it was like a drug addict, I don't know that 
you would hear that that kind of a narrative but yeah yeah also i just want to bring up real quick talking about fat shaming uh, where were the people whenever like date movie and epic movie and all the Jason Friedberg and Aaron Seltzer <laughs> movies are being written because those are the movies that actually like fat shame people. They're like trying to gross you out with people being fat. This used that obesity to make several points. Like it's even in this, uh, the missionary, like him coming through and repressing the urge to tell Charlie that he thinks he's disgusting. It's making a point about one person. He's not the mouth of the movie. He doesn't represent all of the audience's views. He's there to demonstrate that some people are polite to your face and they hold and harbor these truths that they consider to be truths to themselves. And then when they share them with you, it's because they're trying to like make you submit into a way uh, like to recognize that, Hey, you know, your body's different and you should think about that. Um, I, I didn't feel the movie really was trying to push that kind of agenda. Yeah. And it's too, the movie is too empathetic toward Charlie's problems and endeavors to, to be making fun of him, I think. Yeah. It's prevented. He, it's sad. Like, and there are scenes where in particular, like when he kind of breaks and just starts eating that it's tough as an mm. audience member, because you just know, like what's when he's happening, stacking right? it's, slices it's, of pizza on top of each other you're like oh shit all right we're yeah yep. yeah also it's, i, it's I a... noticed from in that scene he like tosses a, p- a box of pizza aside and goes to the next one and it's full of pizza crusts i was like wait a minute this guy's not eating his pizza crusts <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't he's still got taste some things don't change <laughs> yeah yeah gambino's pizza crust as... is notoriously shit everybody knows this <laughs> He's eating two candy bars at a time, but he's not touching those pizza crusts. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's all carbs. Yeah. Um, it's the same as a character in another movie going on a bender, right? That's, you know, kicked alcohol and then goes back into it. Um, and, and I would say the wrestler kind of follows a similar path, right? Where we, 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 the Ram knows his body is falling apart, but keeps pushing himself and keeps going. Right. And yeah, can't that's stop. a good comparison. Yeah. And I think that his yeah he kind of is slowly committing suicide and we have the you know we can talk about the the truth that kind of keeps coming back up where he's demanding truth from people but lying to himself right um that is kind of an interesting theme in here uh and yeah i kind of i i do wonder like well i'll just jump to that since since you brought it up as well about the truth so over and over charlie kind of reiterates this like wanting truth and wanting a real essay from his students uh who he doesn't show himself on camera to yeah uh, and who uh don't seem to exist um they they don't really do anything (laughs) in this plot they're they look like they were screen capped once and then just reuse some footage reactions were really like not that big of reactions i thought like if it's it really felt like somebody was on the other end of a zoom call telling them like just emotional reference points to direct they're like, yeah. now, now look surprised. <laughs> yeah, act shocked. Um, <laughs> where it purposely set this movie in, in 2016, because we get news bits that help set the time for us, I guess, to drive home like, oh, he's not doing this because of pandemic. He's doing it because for obvious reasons that he would be doing, he can't get yeah, out of his yeah. apartment. Um, and he demands the truth from them. And I do think each character kind of has a hidden truth that that they're not reluctant to reveal. And at the end, I guess he finally is true to himself in some way, like turning on the camera and throwing his laptop dramatically across the room. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine like if you're his students don't know what he just did, right? Like they're like, wait a minute, what? Oh, I guess his, his feed went out. You know, it's like, yeah, I guess he turned it off. (laughs) I guess you guys succeeded. You got me fired, but you know, you wrote me some honest stuff and like, I'm out and just chucks his laptop across the room. (laughs) Okay. One grand gesture. I mean, well, the alternative is that he would, awkwardly end the zoom call and then and then go on his way but <laughs> i guess that was yeah <laughs> at an emotional high. yeah I, I, he like reads out some of their truths <laughs> wait yeah that part was that felt a little iffy on the ethics like ethics of that like did yeah. they consent to sharing this or is this public board i guess the key piece here is charlie is telling himself like he's almost trying to martyr himself i thought where he's not Actually, he could spend the money to take care of his health, but he's choosing to set it aside for his daughter 
instead of actually doing something for her or trying to be a part of her life, he kind of thinks like, well, I'll die and then she'll get all this money and she'll be okay with me, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, exactly what he thought he was going to get. Yeah, there's kind of this. So at one point you watch him even talk himself into believing a truth when he starts just repeating that his daughter must have like taken those photos and shared it and looked up this like the missionary's family to help him. And (laughs) that's like so far fetched to me because Mm -hmm. of how it turns out. And it just doesn't like that was when I was like, ah, what's happening? Oh, no, (laughs) I don't understand sort of where this is going with different people's truths because everybody starts believing. It almost seems like they they believe in a skewed kind of view. Um, They never really come to terms with what they've done. Like even the missionary whose whose backstory is that he stole money and that he's on the run. He stole like $2,000, decided to flee and continue doing missionary work door to door because that's what he wanted to do. Instead of handing out pamphlets. That is the yeah. start of the Protestant church, everybody. Uh, <laughs> he clearly fled Catholicism <laughs> and is the Martin Luther of this movie. Um, and it, he like comes back after Charlie's daughter has narked on him. And just says, my family got in touch with me. They said that it doesn't matter. It's, you know, it's just money, which in one way I'm like, that's the family's truth. But he like feels, it seems like next to no remorse for that and is emboldened to continue preaching. And he's like, now I got to proselytize to you, Charlie. Like, I'm going to tell you all about your life. And Charlie's like, uh, you're still not accepting your truth yet. Like you haven't actually admitted something to yourself. So I was mildly confused having Charlie turn around and do that later be like, Oh, she helped him. She got him back. Like she did these things. Um, it pushes him to the ultimate, uh, point at the end where he like stands and reads as as she reads and he walks to her. But, um, it just, yeah, it's really muddled for me. I can't make heads or tails right now at the moment, what it was supposed to be or what it means. I guess everybody has their own truth. (laughs) Yeah, I guess he's supposed to, we have this idea that Liz says that he's trying to see, or I guess his ex-wife, right? That he's trying to see the best in people yeah. and just like is constantly optimistic about other people. Oh yeah, Mary's the full cynic and he is the optimist. and Who's, like, Who openly says that her daughter is horrible. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> and fought for custody for that daughter yeah. <laughs> has not tried to make any kind of means to connect Charlie with her again because um, now she's shielding him. I guess she started her own truth. That is a lie. It gets all muddled, like I said. (laughs) She describes her own daughter as Dr. Loomis describes Michael Myers. (laughs) There's nothing you can do. It's pure evil. (laughs) She's like, never escape. Now you know why I kept her away from you all these years. She's horrible. (laughs) I I think, like, thinking back on the movie and seeing it a second time, I think, like, the movie is really about a guy who has kind of just let himself slowly you know, let things get out of hand to the point where he's about to die and he just doesn't care about himself anymore. But now that he knows he's about to die and he knows he has a few days left to live, he's just determined to like, you know, when he, like you mentioned earlier, Ryan, when he like turns and yells at the camera, I just need to know I've done one good thing with my life. Like that's basically what the movie is him trying to assuage his guilt of not raising his daughter and, um, you know, all of these things. And I think, him like saying that people are amazing and that oh ellie just you know did that for the missionary kid because she was trying to save him and all this stuff and everybody's really great people are incapable of not caring all of these like cheesy one-liners that he says throughout the movie that on the surface come across as the movie trying to be cheesy and like oh aren't people wonderful and even this guy in this horrible situation can realize that i think it's actually about him kind of like things have to be that way for him to justify his life and to feel good that he's leaving a daughter behind who isn't a piece of shit like you know maybe i actually did have an impact on her in these last few days or when i was parenting her early in her life and i can die and not feel guilty uh knowing that i'm leaving her this money and she's smart and she's gonna figure things out and actually she's a nice person deep down if you just like ignore all the terrible things that she did this entire movie um, you know, I think that that's really what it's about is like a guy who's about to die kind of in denial, but using that as a way that denial as a way to be comfortable moving on. I think there's an interesting thought in that Charlie left his family behind for his new boyfriend, thus 
apparently turning his daughter evil. Um, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. She didn't have a strong male role model, so, you know, she just <laughs> yeah, went to yeah. shit oh right away. <laughs> <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> that's, that's a joke, folks. That's a joke. <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's some that's some new life talk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's new life shit. <laughs> so then he, he also pulls his boyfriend away from the church, and that is what the conflict his boyfriend has that eventually leads to his his boyfriend apparently starving himself and then committing suicide as yep. well. And so I guess I can see, and it didn't really necessarily nail this point, but I could see where Charlie is like, I ruined both these people's lives and I t- just didn't do anything worthwhile then. I just made things worse for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a certain, like, it is this, everybody seems to have this fatalism about them. They seem to be imbued with a definitiveness that what they've done cannot be undone to an extent. And Charlie is the only person who seems kind of everybody's still trying in their own way to do something. It feels like just lashing out at the universe. Like, uh, his, his daughter is just constantly an asshole to everybody, but at the same time, here's where that awkward blocking and business comes in. Like she always says something shitty to Charlie, but then she'll get up and go make him a sandwich or do these other things. And she's like, to be fair, when she made the sandwich, put she put fucking Ambien in it yeah. too. <laughs> and so there's like these moments where you're like, uh, I've, what the fuck are you trying to do with these pictures of like shaming him and all this stuff? And so I feel like Charlie's unbearable optimism, I guess is what every character seems to think he has, um, is the main thing that like perseveres him. That truth he tells himself that like lie that he's crafted about like, this is his final purpose. This week is what this is all about. He's definitely going to make it big. Um, when he saves his daughter and like pulls her off the brink and then this other kid and whatever. Um, but it, it's still like so mixed up. Cause I feel like even Liz is his, you know, it basically Liz is like, can't come, can't help, but come back and help him later after she finds out he's been lying to her. Like he isn't even owning up to his own honesty at times. He like didn't tell her anything about his $102,000 he had for his daughter um, yeah, he's kind of a dick. Yeah. Like, he lets his best friend in the world take care of him for free and doesn't pay her, doesn't take himself to the hospital so she doesn't have to take care of him. He says 120 grand sitting in the bank. He's like, oh, it's for Ellie. You know, like, oh, <laughs> like maybe you could just be alive and be a dad. <laughs> you know, what about <laughs> right. that? Um, yeah. And I think part of that is this meditation on that fatalism, that definitiveness of when you're stuck in this mode of thinking about your life as this one thing which, you know, it's um, his daughter thinks that she's just going to be the person. I'm pretty sure she's one of those like assholes that is convinced that she knows the truth and nobody else does. She can see right through everybody, through everything we get. She's very much like a Holden Caulfield, your bunch of fucking phonies kind of person. Um, And that's become her truth. She's like, it's my truth to like cut through you and see who you really are and tell you that you're a shit heel. Uh, And at the same time, she just completely buries the fact that she does have some weird shred of caring about people that keeps her coming back. Like she needs people. She just doesn't know how to reconcile that. And the same with the missionary kid who still goes door to door, even though he escaped like his upbringing and this camp and whatever argument he had, um, he's still like trying to convert people for new life, which is just weird. He's going through the motions of like, well, I'm going to do it my way. And that this is the right way to do mm-hmm. it. And this is how I'm going to make my truth. And he's not even affiliated with that church. He's yeah. probably never been to that church, but he's just uses the name of the local mega church to get in the door. And yeah. Yeah. And he still wants to talk to you about Jesus Christ. Like he's not, he's not fleecing people as far as we know and like taking their shit. He's right. genuinely just like, I'm just here to talk about how good God is. It's like putting on a blue vest and going to a Walmart and telling yourself <laughs> I'm an employee here. And then like fixing all the shit on the walls. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I would be more likely to talk to somebody who came to my place and said like, Hey, I want to talk to you about Jesus. I'm just a guy that I'm just doing this like, Oh, that's interesting. You know, rather than like I'm with whatever church or organization and I'm here to parrot the talking points they gave me. Yeah. I would like, if somebody showed up at my door and said, Hey, um, do you have a moment to talk about Jesus? Because I don't understand him. I would be like, Oh, come on in. Like, let's have a conversation. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Have I mean, you seen the last temptation of Christ? <laughs> <laughs> but Yeah. And do you have two hours and 40 minutes? (laughs) I 
think talking about Liz, she's also lying to herself, right? There, There is some depth there where she seems to think she can save Charlie, but not necessarily for Charlie, sort of a forgiveness from not being able to save her brother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is Charlie's boyfriend? I don't think we've said that. And then also she enables Charlie. Like there's so many times where she's like, oh, you're going to kill yourself. This is awful. And here's two meatball subs. Here's yeah. the chicken bucket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was actually in the cut that I saw at Austin Film Festival, there was more gross eating stuff. And they definitely, I feel like because of the criticism mm. that the movie got oh, for fat shaming, it was definitely not as gratuitous in the in the version that I watched last night online. That's saying a lot because it's pretty gratuitous. <laughs> <laughs> But even that being said, I still can't, maybe it's just me, but I can't fathom why that would be fat shaming necessarily because you're watching somebody like I've watched friends binge eat. There's a whole YouTube subgenre of mukbang where everybody eats like way too much. We've all seen the Nathan's hot dog eating contest on the 4th yeah, of July. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's like gigantic burritos the size of like your whole arm and people will just buy that and eat that. Um, it's one of those things where it's like, it's supposed to invoke concern. It's not supposed to invoke judgment necessarily, unless I guess you're a judgy person, in which case you'd be like, wow, they're eating a lot. Yeah. That's the observation. There you go. Um, but it, it really does bring out that kind of sadness where like, anytime I saw Charlie doing it, I was like, oh, Charlie, no. And especially when he was going through the big binge toward the end, I was like, holy fuck, Charlie, just calm down, buddy. Like, stop. Mm. No. Uh, and it, it just created such a visceral emotional reaction for me. Where I was like, I really feel for him. It wasn't like a feeling of pity or anything. I just wanted him to stop. And like, he kept telling everybody around him that they were amazing, which is another point. He's a persuasive writing teacher. Yeah. Who doesn't seem to be able to persuade himself out of anything. And it seems like nobody around him is really able to persuade anybody else to do anything. Like, so it's just one of those, it's an interesting plot point where the way that he figured out at the end to make a real persuasive point is to sacrifice yourself, which is like the ultimate end. Um, but it, I don't know. I couldn't tell if y'all picked up on anything else. I don't know, uh, around that particular motif of like persuasion in Charlie's character. He just usually expounded like really flat kind of compliments of like, you're amazing. And like, Mm -hmm. he's just, he's so bad at persuading somebody. He doesn't even list the qualities of why. And it's only when Mary confronts him that they even have a really heartfelt, like, how are you doing? And kind of breach that surface of like, we can be honest with each other now and talk a little bit more about it. Um, But even then he's still just like, she's amazing. Like my daughter, she's so great after she's done all the shitty stuff. Uh, Yeah. mm. I mean, maybe part of that is like, you know, he's, yeah, he's an English teacher, but he's teaching an online course and he's telling people about like topic sentences. So if it feels like it's something that's like, this is, you know, kind of a remedial entry level course and, you know, not to, not trying to, you know, cast judgment on that. I just think like maybe he's not the skilled, you know, literary authority that he thinks he is. Um, and then also, also, I think kind of along the lines of talking about, um, you know, generally people not being, being persuaded or being to save, being able to save anybody. I think it's interesting that Liz early on, like pushes the missionary out and she's like, only I can save him. Only I get to do mm-hmm, that. Yeah. And it's like her, her territory and she is not appreciative of other people trying to help. Obviously she and Charlie both have a lot of bad experiences with new life and that's, that's driving some of that. But then later in the movie, she's sitting with him and she says, I don't think anyone can save anyone. And I thought that was a really interesting uh, kind of arc for her. And you know, this fatalism where she's trying to save Charlie for years and she's just realized she can't and therefore no one can save anyone. And then immediately after that, Charlie's like, but Ellie saved the missionary guy because she like sent pictures of him smoking weed to his parents. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, you know, it's like there's that denialism from Charlie coming in and like kind of refuting everything that he is seeing around him in order to make himself feel better and justify his actions. There is a certain amount of being a parent where you're just tied to your child in an inexplicable way. Like they are just this thing that you created. So I do think there's a little bit of that with Charlie where it's like, I brought this into the world and it just is amazing on its own. There is Mm -hmm. that feeling of a child. But, Mm -hmm. and then I do think that there's some like in that trying to convince himself, like it has to be amazing or it's not justified. Like I didn't do it for, you know, as a good thing and that I had this marriage and just ruined these two people instead of doing something good. Um, 
that it, but that exactly it is surface level like he loves her because she's there and she's amazing because she's there and his and yep. he doesn't know anything about her he hasn't been a part of her life since she was eight and i guess the only thing he's really even kept of hers is this I'll be honest, not good essay, but she was eight. So, I mean, I'm being critical of an eight year old. She's in eighth grade. I think there were some lines from the essay that's like, oh, that's interesting. But then, like, the lines that he really cared about was repeating it it was like, the book made me think about my own life. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Can you expand on that, please? Like, (laughs) yeah. Just, yeah, it mostly describes the book, which is something he just like chides his class about, too. Uh Like, you you didn't tell me anything about it. The one thing that I found interesting was he does this with Ellie a few times where he'll ask her for something, anything at all. And her overbearing negativity is the truth for him. Like she wrote that poem that's like mocking him and it's a haiku. So there's at least a little effort put into trying to shit on what he wants her to do. And for him, he takes that and he's like, that's a sign that she like really does care. Mm -hmm. And she, she understands. And he's like, all right, I'm making progress with that. Um, I think he sees that in that he obviously sees that in the essay and it comes around that moment where Ellie basically projects her own opinions onto uh, Herman Melville, where she's like, oh, all the parts uh, about the whale being, you know, just describing the whale were just so sad because it's so boring. You can tell that the writer just doesn't want you to think about their life. And that's, I guess, all that Charlie really wants to see out of her is, yeah, just do that. Like all the time, even when he submits that same essay and flunks her. gets her flunked right uh he's like yeah i shared it because it's a great essay like it's a great essay because you're being true to yourself and your truth this is kind of like this movie in a way it's it's moving and it's encouraging in an other way it seems very dangerous yeah dixon you brought up the script this movie isn't painting with broad strokes it's dumping paint on yeah, the entire building yeah. all at once like, yeah. <laughs> there's no brushes involved <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's one thing that yeah i feel like it tries too hard almost pretentious to a point with its script um that i do think takes away from these character moments these you know these actual interesting things to think about about these people yeah i I think so too and and that kind of threw me off the first time i saw the movie and it kind of kept me from appreciating what fraser's character was going through to the degree that i did on the second watch where I, I was able to kind of like get past some of the less than great writing and some of the characters that were really flat. And I was like, well, what's, what's going on with, this is the interesting character in this movie, Charlie and Liz. Like I want to see what's going on with them and focus more on their journeys. I, that, that stuff was a lot more interesting. I also like a pet peeve of mine as well. N- not just that with the script, but also like it's all always raining. It's always raining. And then it's sunny yeah. at the end. Like these things are just like so obvious. The, you know, like, oh, look at me. I'm I'm doing something symbolic, all, right? Like, that just is too on the nose, too, too on mm-hmm. the nose. One of my favorite characters, probably my third favorite character after Charlie and Liz was Dan, the pizza guy. <laughs> Dan, the pizza man. <laughs> <laughs> that guy was awesome. He came every night with two pizzas and Charlie was like, you know, there's money in the mailbox. Just leave it because he was too embarrassed to go outside and actually interact with the pizza guy. And the pizza guy is so concerned every time he comes. He's like, are you okay? Like, I've been delivering pizzas here for a while. I just want to make sure everything's all right in there. And he's like, yeah, thanks, Dan. Uh, Appreciate your concern. (laughs) Yeah. Again, another another character that demonstrates Charlie's inability to commit to truth, even though he enforces it on everybody else. Yeah. Just uh, constantly like, yeah, I'm good. And then the moment Dan and him lock eyes when he steps outside, uh, my heart broke. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Dan probably feels like an accomplice to something now. (laughs) And it's like, oh, yeah, Yeah, that was rough. Right. And that kicked it off. And and. Again, kind of getting back to if this was a movie where there was addiction or alcoholism, you know, drug addiction or alcoholism, I'm thinking of Train Spotting or Requiem for a Dream. It doesn't really stand out to people as much. Like they kind of just expect that of like, oh, then the person, you know, goes on a drug binge or drinks a whole bunch and then that's what ruins or kills them or whatever. Um, but here, eating is portrayed in the same way. It's interesting that that's kind of rub people the wrong way. Um, mm-hmm. That, that, and Aronofsky, I think he kind of hits on these same beats, which is why I guess he was pulled to this script. <laughs> Somewhat the religious piece, because he's been on a kick for that recently. But this also like person who's kind of just like slowly destroying themselves 
through some kind of addiction. Um, and here, I think it's just another addiction. Like, I don't think this is really I trying agree. to present it as specifically the food or, or being overweight or anything. It's just the same as these other characters who are falling apart in their own way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the the wrestling parallels are really strong. The rest, the, I'm sorry, the wrestler, not the wrestler. The wrestler, movie. yeah, <laughs> the wrestler yeah. parallels. Uh, I think the the wrestler is a much better movie, but I, I think there's a lot of those ideas put into to the whale for sure. Yeah, let's. I want to touch on this. Is another one of my points of like this versus other Aronofsky films, like where it kind of falls because I I really do like. Aronofsky. I think he does present some really interesting view. I think he creates some scenes that are very visceral. I watched this movie twice. I'm not sure I can ever watch Requiem for a Dream again. Uh, and I've watched <laughs> The Wrestler like 10 times. Um, yeah. <laughs> even though there are rough, really rough things in that as well. Um, have you seen it, Mother? No, I haven't. I've been on, <laughs> I miss like Mother and Noah. Uh, so I kind of missed the more recent ones. Yeah. Yeah, So I'll need to catch up on that. Uh, but with you having seen those, like, how does this kind of fall against, you know, his, his resume? Yeah. I think it's a lower Aronofsky film for me. I I think Black Swan and The Wrestler are, you know, kind of his best things that I've seen. Also, Mother is really good. I think Mother is a very polarizing film. A lot of people hate it. Um, but it made my top 10 in 2017. So that's probably going to be up there in that top tier for me as well. And then, um, I didn't really like Wreck- Requiem for a Dream. I felt like it was just a like a Nancy Reagan PSA. Like, hey, don't do drugs, kids. It's like, I get it. I get it. I'm not going to do drugs. Um, and then I didn't like Noah that much. The, way, the Whale is probably better than those two. Um, Anything's better than Noah. But it has, you know, it has a lot of problems like we've talked through. But, um, you know, there's there's a lot of good stuff in here that mirrors his better films. But there's stuff here that just... Does, doesn't work that well. So I would say like mid to low tier Aronofsky, but bottom 50%. Yeah, I haven't seen too many of Aronofsky. I mean, I've seen The Wrestler and Black Swan and Noah. I haven't seen Requiem. I, I don't think I've been seen Mother either. But uh, yeah, I would say that this is probably lower than obviously The Wrestler's my top. Um, but everything else is kind of like, yeah, the whale's under there because of, I think it's partially just because it feels so forced at times, the shot blocking, especially the dialogue, all of that, like it really is carried by some cinematography and mostly just uh, like Brendan Fraser's performance and Han Chow, uh, like them just knocking it out of the fucking park whenever they're on screen together or whenever Brendan mm-hmm. Fraser's on screen. It's just like, you know, which is most of the time. So both of them nominated for Oscars. So uh, this will post after the Oscars, but we're recording before the Oscars. So. Uh, you know, well, you'll know by the time you listen to this, but yeah. Um, so that's kind of where it stacks up for me. I know is at my bottom and Noah, I think will always be at the bottom for me. It depends when I see Requiem, what I feel, but I watched that thing in theaters and man, that was, that was a rough time for me. I was just like, <laughs> oh God, <laughs> sure. Uh, um yeah what about he you, also Ryan? did pie that's the other hey, i haven't seen oh. that one i actually read that they're uh re-releasing that yes. in the theaters yeah. on pie day this they, year they um are. so like uh in a few days um that is gonna do like a one day imax release i think interesting pie i think i enjoy the roughness of it when i first saw it because it's that independent early breakthrough aronofsky pouring his heart out Mm-hmm. making a lot of like interesting decisions like trying to really kind of push some things um and so it's it's interesting in that way and then i i like requiem for a dream as a as a movie that makes you feel horrible and presents some really <laughs> horrible people in horrible situations it has jared leto in it too you know and like that's that's always yeah. a problem for me yeah <laughs> it was but yeah it was when he was like okay-ish like before uh, he got- <laughs> it was before morbid time so <laughs> yeah oh god and yeah. So Samuel Hunter himself is gay and he was Mormon. And my understanding is in the original play, it was Mormons. So someone ah. studio wise or something was like, well, let's not upset the Mormons. But I can't see how they would watch or like this movie anyway. So that's not really a concern. Did <laughs> uh, you piss off the Amish too while you're at it? The aesthetic um, of that character was very Mormon like. Clean cut, uh, yeah, right, young yeah. white guy in like a, you know, button down and a tie knocking on doors. Showing yeah. up at your door. Yeah. Um, and so I do see the heart of 
a character who isn't living their truth and is conflicted by, you know, the flesh and the soul and, and all of these pieces that get through, but it is the script got kept so stage play. Yeah. And someone else needed to come in and give it a, a movie treatment push up, you know, in some way. Yeah. Ar- Aronofsky talked about how like he had thought about trying to expand it outside of the apartment and make it more like a movie, but he just really wanted to like do kind of a straighter play adaptation and explore the small interiors of this space with that large character. And some of that stuff works. I think it's just like one, it's just kind of unrealistic to have all these people parading in and out of there all the time. And then two, like it just, those characters are just so flat. If they had written better characters for his daughter and for this missionary and other people, I think it could have worked really well in in this setting that it was in. I think sometimes play adaptations that feel like a stage play can work really well. Um, I think Fences is a great example of that. I don't know if you guys saw Fences from a few years ago. Um, Denzel Washington and Viola Davis uh, were really great in that. And it feels like a stage play. It's like set in this house and it's pretty much just kind of two people talking and, and going over these, you know, emotions of a husband and wife. But I thought it was really good. And so it's sometimes... Movies like that, I'm like, ah, I wish that you would take advantage of the fact that you're a movie and do some other things rather than just kind of have characters saying emotional things back and forth, standing in one place. But sometimes it, it can work pretty well. And I feel like The Whale could have been a lot better if it had just had a little bit better side characters. And the, the premise and the approach could have worked. Uh, and I do think it did. Like, overall, I was a, a thumbs up on this. I think it, the good stuff outweighs the bad. Uh we do get a couple glimpses out. The movie starts on the a bus where uh, our missionary character, I'm totally forgetting his name, uh, gets off. And that's good. Yeah, Thomas. That's where we start. We do have a flashback to a younger Charlie and his daughter on the beach. That's something you could have done that makes it a little bit more movie if you'd flash back to some other things. And then you could have this contrast of a previous life and the current life and that's something that you can, you know, in a play, that's hard to do, right? To like give two yeah. things a juxtaposition like that of two different time frames. Um, so that that could have maybe played a little bit, you know. But again, you can have a, a movie that's just all in one apartment. The room is amazing. So, you know, it works just fine. <laughs> so then the ending of this movie. Yeah, we got to talk about general, the ending. Yeah, we got to talk about the ending. And then my other question is like, is he the whale or is he Moby Dick? I'm sorry, is he Ahab? Ahab? Yeah, is he Moby Dick or is he Ahab? Like, I didn't necessarily get exactly if he was the whale other than in size. Is he Ishmael? No. (laughs) He's got to be one or the other. He's either the whale, he's either the emotionless whale, as described in the, you know, that that doesn't know what's going on, or he's Ahab. I do think maybe to me it's more that Ahab where he thinks he can redeem himself in this way. If he can just get his daughter on board and he's somehow so locked into that that he's destroying himself and everyone around him uh, for something that honestly he probably can't do or doesn't do. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, he's both, right? He's like Captain Ahab who's trying to kill himself. Yep. You know, That's and fair. he's, he's yeah. the whale. So yeah, the, the ending of the movie, which I understand is like slightly different from the play, but but more or less the same. He has tricked Ellie into turning in an essay <laughs> that is her old essay that he's gotten, I guess, after he left that he's locked on to is some truth about her in a, t- I think in a time before, mm-hmm. right? He looks at it as this, like, that's who she was right before I fucked everything up. Well, it's from, it's from her eighth grade English class. So it was after he left the family and his wife had given it to him at some point, but like she's failing high school and she comes to him. He's like, I'll help you with your your essays like so you can maybe try to pass and, and graduate and then turns in an eighth grade essay to a senior English class as, this, as if this is going to turn things around from her. Like he's sabotaging her chances to graduate. Again, I'm just like, he doesn't see anything that he's doing. <laughs> yeah. He really doesn't. He's just <laughs> he's so fixated. He's doing something and- good for her, right? It's horrible. Yeah, but he's actually good, right? It's the same thing with Thomas, I guess, in a way where Ellie does something horrible, but apparently it's going to be good. It's so weirdly inadvertent. It seems almost like I know like Ahab so fixated on trying to kill the whale that it like blinds him to anything else in a way. And it makes me think that 
that's kind of the same case for Charlie where he's just going to keep telling himself that this is good for them. And it like, isn't, it really doesn't still doesn't really stick with me. Like any of what happens at the end. Um, some of the characters never really come to that truth. And so it made me think, is this like supposed to be more of a cautionary performance um, in telling you how dangerous it is, like what it does when only this room of people, like five people who are concealing truths from each other and who all have their own vices. Like clearly Ellie has some vice for posting everything to social media and sharing all of her fucking mind. Um, Charlie has his vice of food. Mary has liquor uh, smoking for Lizzie. And then Thomas is like, I guess a stoner who ran away and stole money. Like that was, I don't know if that's his vice or if it's his Jesus. vice. He's proselytizing. He's, yeah. He's <laughs> getting high on God, everybody. But like they all bang around in this screenplay and this performance. And it just, it leads to like what seems like more and more suffering, but they keep coming back to each other. And I think that's where like Charlie's whole line about, uh, do you ever get the feeling that people are incapable of like, not caring mm. um it comes into play like no matter what even if you're a horrible person something ar- about you will bring you back to humanity and if that's the message at the end of it then it's like that's kind of inspiring i guess from like the most bleak place possible which I, I is how this seems to end for me i i feel like even the metaphor of charlie releasing and like flying up into his he's finally back on the beach and it's this memory mm. um like realistically where he's at right now is he probably fell over dead and is now like in front well, of he fell over daughter. dead either way. <laughs> yeah, it's true. He fell yeah. over dead either way, but now he fell over dead and he felt good about it, I guess. The image of him lifting off the ground and the light shining in like this heavenly light. I was just like, oh my God, could this be any more ham fisted in the way they're, yeah. they're showing this thing? Like, uh, but I do like, I actually think it's bleaker than you were saying, John. I, I think like, all, all those statements by Charlie are just him justifying himself and not actually true or, or wisdom. He's, he's feeding himself physically and mentally, Dixon? Yes, and, and I think that, you know, basically at the end of the movie, he's like, oh, I finally did it. Like, you know, maybe my daughter doesn't hate me and I did something good. And he's just, yes, I can finally die now, but it's actually just super sad and pathetic and pointless. You know? Oh, so you mean it's like Brazil? I was going to say, that uh, was my thought. That was my thought. Except there's there's not like a massive ministry of truth. There's not a bureaucracy. That is, yeah, that's trendy. Uh-huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not about <laughs> government overreach, uh, but yeah. In previous films, Aronofsky tends to leave things more open-ended. And it was interesting to me that in the play, it is more open-ended. Like it, we kind of hear some waves. This is, you know, what I read of the play. You hear some waves and then it kind of cuts to black after he's walked over and you don't really know exactly what to make of it. And then Aronofsky was like, no, I need it to be this more ham fisted thing that he does actually get saved. I guess that was kind of, it was interesting to me because I would have thought this would have just been like, now nah, it's over, you know, and you just have to think about like, did he get what he wanted or not? The way you think about religion, right? There's sort of this like faith that mm-hmm. either you can have a faith that, that he was good and good things happened after this or not and not know or, or be cynical about it yourself but here instead he kind of gives us something that i'm like did it did it earn that i don't really understand i think he did get what he wanted but the sad thing is that it was at the expense of everyone else around him in that movie and nobody else got what they wanted you know like uh you know maybe his daughter got what she wanted because he like promised her some money but she's like not legally old enough to get it yet so i don't know like you know who knows if Mm. that would actually come i think she wanted revenge she wanted revenge against her dad. Like, that's yeah. why she was so harsh on him from, from every statement she made to him. Like Stand that up and walk over here, hate. you fucking bitch. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. From the very beginning. Yeah. She's trying to make that hate. I guess it could still be interpreted multiple ways. I, I know that, like, he's achieved his salvation, but we're still here kind of trying to think on, well, what really does happen after that? Like, in the physical space that he occupies? Because I guess that's where it shifts into being a visual metaphor. And becomes much more of like a, oh, he's returned to, he feels like he has restored things. He's returned to that beach, the like halcyon days before he betrayed his daughter, before he um, killed his lover or feels that he killed his lover, drove him to die, something like that. This like pre-guilt basically. And that's like all that he was trying to do in the last week was feel that. And whether or not that's actually true, I guess is irrelevant because he believes it to be. And that's the kind of 
subtext of the entire feature is like, whatever you believe to be true is what's going to be true to you. And then you're going to encounter other people who are trying to hide their truth or expose it in different ways to achieve what they need to live their lives. And that's where it comes into me being like, is this observational performance like a cautionary tale for you? Or is this a meditation on what does that mean for you? And what does it make you think about what you're hiding from your friends or your family? Talking about Samuel D. Hunter having um, been gay and been in the Mormon church gives me a lot of that vibe of like, I can see it instilled in here. There is very much that conflict of like, what do I expose when and how do I tell you about your truth? And like that frustration of wanting to just share yourself with somebody um, and then it having detrimental effects, worrying that your family finds out something about you, worrying that your lover finds out something about you or that you pull them away from something that they love because of trying to live to a truth, just trying to like adhere to a narrative you've built for yourself and what it can cause. Yeah. If it only it was more subtle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it could actually it was be more like, subtle. Yeah. You could actually think on it instead of, you know, I guess what we got. All right. I guess we'll go around on whether we would recommend this. The performances are really excellent. And it is interesting if you're an Aronofsky fan. Like, I think it's, you know, worth a watch to see how he's trying to cram this apartment onto the screen and, and kind of does pull that off. But to a general audience, uh, Darla watched it and was like, I don't think she liked it, but she couldn't tell me. It was kind of the same thing, I guess, we all have here. <laughs> she couldn't tell me that she didn't like it or that she did like it. She wasn't really sure what to make of it either. Uh, and she did complain that that it seemed like it was supposed to be a movie where he started to try to lose weight, but he didn't. And that didn't seem to have anything to do with it. Like, that's kind of what you would expect. And so she also was like, I don't really know. Like, did he get redeemed? I don't know. And so, yeah, I think it's a little artsy. I, I think it's pretty hilarious to try to use maybe the greatest American novel of Moby Dick to be the trappings around your little play. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's just a little too ham fisted, but worth a watch for like, if you're, Hey, you want to see great performance, you will see a great performance. Like that's, that is somewhat worth admission price. Now that I own this movie, I have to justify it. This is, yeah. <laughs> is what John always does. Now that it's on my shelf, I have to give a reason. <laughs> Ryan's going to watch it again later tonight. <laughs> yeah, just to get my uh, get my my money out of it, Dixon. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, like I said, I thought there were a lot of things really good, a lot of things that were really not good. And I constantly felt that both times I watched this movie. Like, oh, that's great. Oh, God, this is not great. And, you know, overall, both times I came out positively like you know there's enough good to outweigh the bad Fraser is really great Hong Chow is really great and there there's enough stuff there that I think is is worth it for for people to check this out it definitely does feel like a play and if that's not your thing then you know maybe maybe don't seek it out but I, I do think it's you know it's worth watching but you know obviously we only have so much time and if you're judging this against other things if you like plays I would go for it. If you don't, maybe look at another direction. John? Yeah, I. my truth is that I would recommend this to uh, almost anybody for a single watch, and mostly because it feels fresh to me for a dramatic experience, for a meditation on self-destruction. Um, as ham-fisted as it is, the performances are so solid uh, between uh, Hong Chao and Brendan Fraser, and the the cast around that helps here and there they come in and it's okay but really they carry that movie so well that it's hard for me not to recommend it for a single viewing at the very least so yeah well that's, that's the number of times you've seen it so that's right and uh <laughs> i might now that i own it i have to justify it i might go back and watch it more times who knows <laughs> but yeah it is one of those like if you're in the mood for a stage play kind of experience it's going to get you i feel like it's like in the middle of stage to cinema adaptations it doesn't just fully go into like shooting from a static angle <laughs> several places. The camera's movement is so dynamic, it makes it much more engrossing. So I would recommend it. Sounds good. Thank you for joining us for our afterthoughts. Maybe next time we'll talk about The Whale Returns, where it absolutely undercuts everything that this movie did and adds in a CGI <laughs> rock. <laughs> like Brandon Fraser just wakes up on the floor of his apartment. He's like, oh, God, I got to get my life in order. <laughs> yeah. We, I, what's the asylum version of the whale, Ryan? Do you know? Oh, they yeah. Make, the walrus. The, big, the walrus. The, the, the walrus. The walrus. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. There you go. Tune in for the walrus review. <laughs> so uh, Paul, Paul McCartney stars. It's just Tusk. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, that's just Tusk. <laughs> Well, once again, as always, Ryan King signing off. 
And John. And Michael Dixon. Thanks for putting up with our bullshit. Hey there, movie buffs, TV toughs, and all listeners in between. John here from the Afterthoughts Podcast. I just wanted to drop in at the end of this episode and say thanks for listening. If you've got afterthoughts of your own to share, hit us up. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Afterpod, or jump into a conversation on our Discord server. You can find info for this and more at theafterpod.transistor.fm. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode.